Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into the richness of the gospel text. And a rich gospel text indeed. This 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time, uh, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 35. And in those verses, we have uh, Mark's version of Peter's confession of Christ. Uh, while shorter than the others, nonetheless, <laughs> quite rich. So what I want to do is just jump right into our reading for this evening. So if you have your Bible out there, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any one wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Amen. So here we have uh, the popular uh, text of Peter's confession of Christ. Now, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, refer to the episode of Jesus when in Caesarea at Philippi, he asked his apostles what people thought of him. The common fact in the three gospels is Peter's response, you are the Christ. Now it's interesting, Matthew adds in chapter 16, verse 16, the Son of the Living God. In the time after Easter, the title Christ became Jesus' second name. In fact, it is mentioned more than 500 times in the New Testament, almost always in the composite form, Jesus Christ or our Lord Jesus Christ. However, it must be noted, it was not so in the beginning. Why? Well, between Jesus and Christ, a verb was understood. Jesus is the Christ. To say Christ was not to call Jesus by his name, but to make an affirmation about him. Huh? Remember, initially he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, his name and the town he was from. Such identification certainly was uh, customary in those days, uh, i.e. Joseph of Arimathea. Now, 
the implications of this are far-ranging. That is Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Well, let Fulton Sheen speak to us here, the widely popular Fulton Sheen. He has a beautiful reflection on this as it relates to the town of Nazareth. This is Fulton Sheen. The term Nazarene signified contempt. The little village was off the main roads at the foot of the mountains, nestling in a cup of hills. It was out of reach of the merchants of Greece, the legions of Rome, and the journeys of the sophisticated, he says. It is not mentioned in ancient geographies. It deserved its name, for it was just a, in the Hebrew, netzer, a sprout that grows on the stump of a tree. Huh? Did you hear that? A sprout that grows on the stump of a tree. Does that sound familiar? Well, it echoes Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, and Fulton Sheen makes note of this. As he says, centuries before, Isaiah had foretold that a branch or sprout or netzer would grow out of the roots of the country. It would seem to be of little value and many would despise it, but it ultimately would have dominion over the earth. The fact that Christ took up his residence in a despised village was a prefigurement of the obscurity and ignominy that would ever plague him and his followers. Mm, beautiful. The name Nazareth would be nailed over his head on a sign of contradiction as a scornful repudiation of his claims. Before that, when Philip told Nathaniel, we have discovered who it was Moses wrote of in his law and the prophets too, it is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. What was Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come from Nazareth? The big cities are sometimes thought to contain all the wisdom while the little towns are looked upon as backward and unprogressive. Christ chose the significant Bethlehem for the glory of his birth, the ridiculed Nazareth for his youth, but the glorious cosmopolitan Jerusalem for his death. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is but the prelude to, can anything redemptive come from a man who dies on a cross? Fulton Sheen goes on. Nazareth would be a place of humiliation for him, a training ground for Golgotha. Nazareth was in Galilee, and the whole of Galilee was a despised region in the eyes of the more cultured people of Judea. Galilean speech was supposed to be crude and rude, so much that when Peter denied our Lord, the maidservant reminded him that his speech betrayed him. He had been with the Galilean. No one would ever look to Galilee, therefore, for a teacher. And yet, the light of the world was the Galilean. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the self-wise and proud. And Fulton Sheen concludes, Nathaniel merely gave expression to an evil prejudice probably as old as humanity itself. People in their power to teach are judged by the places whence they come. Worldly wisdom comes from where we expect it. And the bestsellers, the standard brands and the universities... Divine wisdom comes from the unsuspected quarters, which the world holds in derision. Whew, that is rich. So, how important is Jesus of Nazareth? Well, very important. And I want to keep that reflection in uh, our rearview mirror as we continue to engage this text. Okay, circling back to the relevance of the word Christ. We know 
that Christ in the Greek translates the Hebrew Messiah or Messiah. And both of those words mean what? Anointed. The term derives from the fact that in the Old Testament, kings, prophets, and priests at the moment of their election were consecrated through an anointing with perfumed oil. The whole primitive tradition of the church is unanimous in proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the awaited Christ or Messiah. In fact, what do we read if we go to Mark chapter 14, verse 61? To the question of the high priests, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He replies, I am. But in his ministry, what do we find? He was constant in tempering the excitement about his presence because he knew full well it was charged with the idea that he was a political and military leader who would liberate Israel from pagan dominion and establish the kingdom of God on earth by force. Rather, the opposite is taking place, huh? And he let his apostles know. What do we read in the Gospels? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That the Son of Man must suffer many things. And how about verse 32? And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Was this not the man who just said, you are the Christ? That Matthew 16, 16 says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? This is illogical. How can this man who just proclaimed his faith in Jesus Christ as the son of living God now be Satan? That makes no sense. What is going on here? Well, it is more than a gentle reminder of our humanity. My dear friends, we can profess great faith, and certainly Peter does that here. He professes great faith, but there's this constant internal tension, that tension between the stuff of heaven and the stuff of earth, that tension in what is infinite versus what is finite, that tension that is inside of us all, that tension that is the paradox of the cross. Fascinating. Okay, there's some beautiful words from one Mary Caucus. You've heard me quote him before, Erasmo Leva Mary Caucus. Uh, we are drawing from some of my favorite figures, some of my favorite theologians this evening, and Fulton Sheen and Mary Caucus. Uh, this is Mary Caucus. He says, here in this verse, Jesus now struggles physically to free himself from Peter's grasp. I like this. He says, it is inconceivable that someone with Peter's impetuous character would have rebuked Jesus in the polite and quiet manner most translations would have us believe. Then Peter took him aside and so on. I think that's very um, keen on Mary Caucus's part there. We are to see, as Mary Caucus continues, Peter vehemently interposing himself between Jesus and Jerusalem and using his hands firmly on Jesus' body to make him turn back. 
Jesus then struggles to shake himself loose of Peter's hold as at the same time he turns about to put Peter behind him, thus clearing the road for his progress toward Jerusalem. Jesus and Peter thus engage in a poignant dance in which two kinds of love are competing for the upper hand and the victory. Catch this point. God's determination for self-oblation out of love and Peter's loving determination to save his friend from death. What is going on here? Huh? Jesus here sets a standard for truth in all friendship when he calls Peter Satan. Why? Because Satan is God's arch enemy. No title could have been more wounding and therefore more effective hurled by the Son of God to his human friend, Peter. My dear friends, Jesus came among us, not primarily to establish an easygoing human fellowship, the sort of fellowship that produces warm feelings of acceptance and belonging. Do not be confused by such sentimentality. He came among us to redeem us from sin, an operation that cannot avoid inflicting pain. Friendship in truth means never forgetting the ultimate goal of our life by basking in the enjoyable illusion of present sanctity, a mutual human support, a fine pat on the back. No, there is something so much deeper going on here in this text. Jesus can support us as our friend only insofar as his help moves our life towards his Father. This is why all friendship is rooted in that highest form of love, agape, that form of love which is both divine and sacrificial. Mm. You know, the harsh words addressed to Peter, which seeks to dissuade him from such thoughts, get behind me, Satan, is identical with that addressed to the tempter of the desert. In point of fact, if you look at it carefully, in both cases, it is about the same attempt to deflect him from the path that the Father has indicated to him, that of the suffering servant of Yahweh, to another which is what? According to men, not according to God. That's the tension, right? Salvation will come from the sacrifice of himself, from giving his life and ransom for many, not from the elimination of the enemy from a particular salvation destined for only one people, one passes to a universal salvation. Now, regrettably, we must state that Peter's heir has been repeated in history. Certain men of the church and even successors of Peter, as many of us know, have behaved at certain times as if the kingdom of God was of this world and should be affirmed by force instead of doing so with suffering and martyrdom. The reason why I bring this up now is because it really is what lies at the heart of today's gospel, huh? Here you have the first pope saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then, but a few verses later, being called Satan. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. He overcomes our weakness, our humanity our sinfulness. And as such, he has overcome the popes that have failed the church in their 
affirmation of force. Let us be mindful, my dear friends, of this point, because many people can be critical of what popes have done in history. But be assured, when Christ says, Lo, I will be with you always, he means what he says because he says what he means. Huh? You know, this whole topic of force is very important. It was about a week and a half ago we were talking about one St. Angela Marici. One of her famous quotes was what? We never achieve great things by force. Why? Why can we never achieve great things by force? Because that does not belong to the nature of love. Love can never be coerced. Love can never be browbeated. Love can never be forced. It must always come from within. It must always come freely within. We never say, I love you and mean it when it is forced. We say, I love you when it is an outgrowth of our response to the desire to will the good of the other, because that's the essence of love. In the gospel, it's most fascinating. Jesus does not seem to be surprised by people's opinions, huh? Nor does he take time to deny them. He only poses a question to his disciples, and he does so also in our reading this evening. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? A leap must be taken that has not come from the flesh or from blood, but is a gift of God which must be accepted through the docility of an interior light from which faith is born. Every day there are men and women who take this leap of faith. Do we belong to that group? Do we say, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? One thing is certain. If we fall into that camp who have taken that leap, you know well that if you have taken that leap, you will not go back for anything in this world. And more than that, you would be surprised to have been able to live for so long without the light and strength that comes from Christ. It is a fascinating thing to think about the two questions that Christ poses. Who do they say that I am and who do you say that I am? But how about a third question? How about a new question? Who are you in light of me? You see, when you read verses 34 and 35, that is the new question we should be asking. Listen carefully. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. My dear friends, who are we? In light of Christ. Huh? We must ask this question if we are going to be serious about our transformation in Christ. If we are going to be serious about really entering into that first principle or that first step in our transformation in Christ. That step of readiness. That deep yearning to put away the old man and put on the new cloth of Christ. The desire to become something fundamentally different. We have been given the grace in our baptism 
to assist us in our journey, but we must cooperate in that grace. This desire, this readiness is the fundamental precondition to our transformation in Christ. It is, we can say, the primal gesture to the light of Christ that has reached our eyes, the original gesture towards God. It is the consequence of our consciousness being in need of redemption on one hand and the comprehension of being called by Christ to ask that question, who am I in light of Christ? When our souls meet Christ, the encounter bears the mark of contrition. Our heart is smitten by Christ, and we echo those words of Peter, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. Confrontation of our own selves with God renders us what but conscious and aware of our own unworthiness and sinfulness. Suddenly, the guilt we incur burns our souls, and we reject evil and revert to God. We must be genuine in our resolve. It is to say, my dear friends, contrition awakens the soul in its depth because our encounters with Christ, when they are real, invade our souls through and through. Here's the thing. What did we just read in the gospel? We must deny self. If unconditional readiness and contrition constitute the initial steps in our transformation in Christ, then the next decisive step along the road is self-knowledge. And certainly, it's virtuous kin of uh, humility and truthfulness. If man remains ignorant of his nature and defects, all of his endeavors, my dear brothers and sisters, will end in failure. If we are to follow the way of Christ and live in his life, then we must be transformed in his truth. Remember, he is the way, the life, and the truth, and indeed, he will set us free in our interior journey if we examine ourselves in light of who we are versus who we are not. Truthfulness is foundational to the interior life because it is recognizing who we are for exactly that and nothing more. Who we are is created in the image and likeness of God. The process of change can only effectively transform our hearts if we enter into this truthfulness. St. John Paul II once said that an excuse is worse than a lie because it is a lie guarded. The more we excuse the lie, the greater the task is to protect the false self. This is why uh, the virtue of humility is so important, because the humble person does not judge himself to be smaller or larger than he really is. The humble person is not troubled by self-interest, reputation, or I even say, my dear friends, even failure, huh? Humility is the mother and fountainhead of all human virtues because it truly does set us free. So we avoid the false self by being humble and honest with ourselves and increasing in our knowledge of those areas of our life, those faults that are holding us back in our transformation in Christ. Fruitful self-knowledge has us confronting God and in turn allows God to challenge us in the spiritual life. I mean, I don't know how many of you out there 
have played the game of basketball, you can apply this analogy to any sport, really. I grew up primarily playing basketball. And if my coach told me that I had to work on something, maybe my left-hand dribble, or maybe my jump shot, my release point, would I just say, ah, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to go and be on my way. No. If I want to be the best basketball player that I can possibly be, I'm going to listen to what my coach has to tell me. I'm going to work on my left-hand dribble. I'm going to work on my jump shot. And in doing so, I'm going to be a better basketball player for it. If I were to reject his instruction, if I were to reject his challenge to me in working on what I need to work on, then I could not possibly be that best basketball player that I can be. Similarly, and really so much more in the Christian walk of life, when we examine ourselves and we allow the very words of Christ to challenge us and all of the great saints that have gone before us in their model witness to challenge us, indeed, we will become the best version of who God is calling us to be. How do we do this? Well, we work against those bad habits. We work against those addictions. If we are ever going to strive towards perfection, we must accept that challenge for what it is, which means saying no to this or that, the addiction or bad habit, because in saying no, we are at the same time offering an immeasurable greater yes to being the best person who God is calling us to be. Now, earlier I was talking about the importance of Nazareth. My dear friends, the anointed abide in the one who is constantly looking at themselves in light of Christ. Those who are anointed are those who are subject to Christ in all of their poverty. Remember what Jesus says in that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I probably remind you of this great beatitude each and every week, huh? What is our Lord telling us? Blessed are those who are poor in me. Blessed are those who rely upon me for everything. Blessed are those who look into the mirror and see their weakness. And in that weakness, boast of it. Because as you boast, you realize your need for Christ. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.